We are spending the year working through the Gospel of Mark at our large group meetings on Thursday. Um, and what we really want to see when we go through this book is we want to see who Jesus is. And everyone knows about Jesus. People are aware of a man named Jesus. Even those um, who claim to be Christians know that they, they have this sense where they know Jesus. I can tell you, in, in working at a church for seven years, I've had multiple people, more than you would think, come up and, and repent. People who thought they knew Jesus and repent, saying, I had a wrong view of Jesus. And so people outside the church really don't have a good view of Jesus. And oftentimes there are people inside the church who don't have a good view of Jesus. And that's because people don't really look at who Jesus is. And that's what Mark is doing when he's writing this gospel, is he wants us to understand who Jesus is. And that's really important for Mark. And last week, we saw Mark give us three stories of Jesus' life, three interactions Jesus had, and it helped us shape the purpose for, for why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? And this week, we're going to continue to kind of look at that purpose of why Jesus came, but we're going to do it in a little bit more specific of a way. Last week, um, we looked at Romans 8, and there's a really important verse um, in Romans 8, and a really important two words in Romans 8, verse 3. And so this is what it says. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own son, that's Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And there's something, Romans 8 is a significant chapter in the Bible for what it talks about. But there are two <laughs> words in that verse we read which are drastically important to our understanding of why Jesus came. It says Jesus came for sin. For sin. Because of sin, Jesus came. Sin. And our passage today is framed around the subject of sin. And sin is a very polarizing topic, a very polarizing idea. And there are kind of two cultures which surround sin. The first culture is, is what's called the legalistic camp. And th in this camp, just about anything and everything is sin. You can't dance, you can't listen to music, you can't watch movies, you can't do anything because you might accidentally sin in the process of it. These are people who, who really they don't have fun, they're not fun to be around, and they have a bunch of rules to protect them from sin. And what this leads to, what this leads to, is people who think that they have the ability to protect themselves or purify themselves from sin by distancing themselves from it. They think by removing themselves from places where <laughs> sin happens or content which might be sinful, they are purifying themselves from sin. And for the legalist, sin is a really big idea. It's heavy, it's big, they know about it, they think about it, they have a great awareness of sin, and they do everything in their power to avoid it. And some of you may be raised um, in backgrounds where this is really familiar to you. You get this culture of legalism. And it's to this kind of culture that Jesus is ministering to on his, while he was here on earth. And so that's the first camp, and that was the camp that Jesus was primarily working with when he was um, alive on earth. But the second camp is the liberalist camp. And, and so I went to my favorite um, lexicon today, which is Urban Dictionary, um, and I wanted to look up sin. What is sin 
according to Urban Dictionary. And the first definition that came up, and the definition that had the most thumbs up, um, was this. Sin is good, dirty, fun. And then one of the other most popular ones was sin is everything. You see, where legalists um, say everything is sinful, and they attempt to purify and distance themselves from that sin, the liberalists see everything as sinful and just don't want to be burdened by it, so they embrace it. Like, yeah, it's sin, whatever. I'm a sinner, right? Sin City, Vegas is where you go when you just, you know it's bad, you know it's probably dirty, but we'll embrace it anyway. You see, liberalists either accept a notion of sin and see it as something they probably shouldn't be doing, but they disregard it as just moral subjectivity. Well, what's not okay for you can be okay for me. Just because you don't have to do it doesn't mean I don't have to do it. Or else they totally reject the notion of sin altogether and say there are no morals, there is no standard of right and wrong, I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt you. And this, this liberalist camp, can also be found in Christian circles. That's because some people who claim to be Christians think that because Jesus came and died for sin and dealt with the ultimate punishment of sin, that they now have license to sin. They can sin because Jesus dealt with our punishment. It's like, it's like someone had their, their student loans forgiven so they could just spend money on whatever they want to spend and go into more debt because their student loans were forgiven. And, and, and see, here we have the legalists and we have the liberalists, and our culture today lines up more with this liberalist idea. We live in a culture where sin isn't clearly defined, and we aren't scandalized by the idea of sin like legalists are. When we see sin, we don't wall it up, we don't put it in quarantine, we don't make a big deal about it, but it's almost like we're numb to the idea of sin, both inside the church and outside the church. But the reality is, is neither of these views are right. Neither of these camps have a clear view of sin. And if we want to have a clear view of Jesus, we have to have a clear view of sin. If Jesus came for sin, we need to understand what sin is. And so today we're going to look at two stories. Again, Mark, Mark is really big on talking about what Jesus does. Um, and so we're going to look at two stories today which inform our view of sin and subsequently inform our view of Christ. So let's pray, um, and then we'll dive into Mark. Lord, uh, we come before you today as a people who need your word. We come before you as a people um, who struggled with studying today and struggled with staying awake in class today. How much more do we struggle to understand the, the vast theological significance of sin and the purpose that a spotless, blameless man came to die for our sin? God, we are dumb in so many ways. And so we ask for clarity tonight as we submit to your word. And we pray that you grant us pause in our thoughts, um, that we may dwell on your word, which is powerful and which is good for us. So Lord, we give you this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, um, we saw Jesus growing in popularity. He had done some healings and people um, and crowds were following him because of these healings. But we also saw Jesus amidst the peak of his popularity. He withdrew from the crowds, went to a desolate place, and then when his disciples came, they were like, Jesus, you got crowds waiting for you to heal. Jesus said, you know what, let's go to the next town so that I may preach. 
You see, Jesus healed people, but his primary motivation while on earth was to preach. He came to preach a message, not simply to perform parlor tricks to entertain crowds. And so what's actually rare in the Gospel of Mark, and you'll notice this, we've been in it for three weeks, and you need a lot of hands to count how many times Mark has said the word immediately. In Mark's gospel, it's always going, this is what happens next, this is what happens next, this is what happens next. And so, from where we left off last week to where we are today, there's a really unique pause in Mark's gospel. There's a lapse of time between what was happening with Jesus and what is now happening. And this is where um, we are going to see our first story and we're going to see our first point. And this point this story is going to illustrate is the weight of sin. The weight of sin. And so if you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. If not, it'll be on the screen. We'll start by looking at the first two verses. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, some days had passed, a period of time, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Probably second only to the word immediately, Mark is always talking about crowds that follow Jesus. Crowds and multitudes and people crowding in um, around Jesus here. And and, and maybe if you're a literature major in here, maybe you picked up, um, who were here last week, maybe you picked up on Mark's subtle clues about Jesus' popularity um, in this text. You see, if you look back at Mark 1.33, which we looked at last week, this is what um, Mark said. He said, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, right? Jesus heals a woman in her house. They brought like the whole town. They were standing at the door with urgency waiting to see Jesus. But now did you see what Mark said? He said in verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And so what Jesus's popularity was a mere paragraph break ago It's exponentially more now. There are people, there are hordes, they are clamoring, they want healings, they want miracles. Why? Because we should desire those things. Healings are good, miracles are fun. We should be people who are driven to those things. And Jesus' popularity has gone from Bieber to Timberlake. He is cosmic in his popularity level right now. He's like in the whole region of Galilee, People are coming from every quarter to see Jesus, and they're waiting for healing. Word has gotten out that Jesus is a healer, and yet, what do we see Jesus do? He's preaching. And see, Jesus has integrity. See, Jesus Jesus said to, to Peter, when Peter came, he says, let's go because I need to preach to them. Because I need to preach them the message of the gospel. And all these people come, and how easy would it be for us to be like, you know what? There's all these people clamoring for something else. They don't really care about my message. How easy would it be to just start healing people left and right? They'd like that, boost my ratings, probably get a couple more Twitter followers. It'd be really easy. But Jesus was serious when he said he was about a message. He was about a message. And so you can imagine kind of the angst that's going on around Jesus' house. There's, there's a lot of people, right? We're on Saturday, we're going to be around a lot of people, and I get anxious when I'm at Grizz Games because there's a lot of people, and I don't like lots of people. Um, and so there's that aspect going on. And then there's this aspect where they're all waiting for something, and it's not happening. 
right? Can you imagine, all right, this is in the Middle East, okay? Imagine how anxious we'll get if, if Saturday is 90 degrees, like it was right now, and right we're in the student section, so we're on the east side, and the sun's blaring down on us, and we're standing there for hours waiting for a football game, and it never happens. It's like this tension level just keeps rising and rising and rising, and you're waiting for something. And that's what's going on with the crowd here. They're waiting for Jesus to do something, and Jesus is just talking. He's sharing the word with them. But then we meet some rabble-rousers. We meet some hardcore followers of Jesus, and we see this in Mark 2, verses 3 and 4. And they came. I love that. They don't even get a name. They just came. Who are they? Crazy people. Crazy people. And they came, bringing to him, that's Jesus, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowds, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. You see, these men, there's a distinction. These men are not like the rest of the crowd. See, the rest of the crowd was content standing at a distance, was content waiting, hoping that they would be appeased by God. These men acted and said, forget it, we're going to Jesus. We're getting to Jesus now. And you know what drove them? A desperate faith. You know how I know that? Because they dug through a roof. Okay? They didn't push through a crowd. Okay? They, there's a building that people live in. And they went on top and dug through somebody else's roof. <laughs> Normal people don't do that. Not desperate people don't do that. But when you're driven by a desperate faith, you do desperate things. And so these people, can you imagine the risk? Can you get, Dropkick Murphys was at the university center last night. If you didn't get tickets, you know what you didn't do? Dig through the roof. Why? Because you get in trouble. <laughs> And yet these people come. And so in the Middle East, what happened is they had these, these houses that were made of, of kind of like brick and, and remnant of, of concrete that was made and clay. And they, the, the deck was like the roof. And so it was, people paid money to have their roof repressed so they could get away from the air they, or get away from the stale air down below. They could dry their meats. Um, like it's not just like roofs don't matter in the first century. And also... It's not their roof. And yet they go up there and they start digging through this roof. And they make a hole in it. And, and, and just sidebar, okay? Sidebar here. Do you have friends like this? Okay? There is such a thing as a theology of friendship. You see, the Proverbs are full of wisdom on your friends. And they speak of the counsel of friends. It says, do not associate yourself with fools, but with friends who lead you to right counsel. And see, there is something where a right view of God shapes right relationships we have with other people. If we view God properly, it shapes the friends we make and the relationships we have. Now, it's okay to be friends with that guy. Right? And, and we should, oftentimes, we as Christians, should be friends with people who are just the dum-dums. People who, who, and not just dum-dums, we should be friends with non-Christians. But there's always that, you, you have this close circle of friends. But we should have 
friends um, who are not Christians who may do stupid, dumb things like go do naked keg stands on the Clark Fork. And, and yet, when we're not with them, when they're doing dumb things, we should have friends who are desperate to bring us to Jesus. Who are desperate to pull us to Christ. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying you should not or that you shouldn't have friends who aren't Christians. But are those who speak into your life, are those who have counsel over you, are they faithful in pulling you to Christ? How, how I want to be a friend who risks awkward situations, like digging through a roof, but it's nothing. Why? Because my friend needs Jesus. To risk our friendship to say, man, how you're living your life is not right. Come back to Jesus. That's largely what the church is here for. That's why God has given us relationships. See, relationships didn't develop. It's not like God created Adam and Eve and he saw him kind of chatting. He's like, what's going on here? And then, you know, that babies happen and now he's scared. But now like babies are making friends with babies. And God's like, this is not how I planned it. God designed us to relate with people. And so as Christians, we should relate Christianly. How I desire and how I have been blessed with friends who will dig through roofs to ground me in Christ. Do you have friends like that? Do you surround yourself with friends like that? Are you a friend like that? Okay, time in. Okay, good friends, radical faith, hole in the roof, buddy the paralytic, lower down to Jesus. And again, like last week, there's these dramatic, and Mark's funny how he does this because he's so progressive in his writing style, and yet we just imagine the pause that happened. People dig through a roof, drop a paralytic, like bombs away paralytic, to Jesus. How would Jesus respond? How would Jesus respond? Would he rebuke them for their bold and brash arrogance? Would he perform a miracle healing? How does Jesus respond? But look at the unique response of Jesus in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith. So that's important. A lot of craziness is happening, but what does Jesus see? This is faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' response to this whole scene is to forgive this man's sins. Now, the murmur that was going around in the crowd, you can imagine what has happened now. Because this is not, like the crowd was finally excited. Something's happening here. People falling through the roof. And then Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven. The crowd's like, that's not what we expected. I mean, imagine what's going on. We don't know how the, the four friends of the paralytic responded in this moment. But were they disappointed in what happened? Did they really know what happened? Like, they went there wanting their paralytic friend to be healed by Jesus. And yet this event, this, these words were spoken. He stayed on his mat. Nothing happens. And people don't really know what to think. But the scribes knew what to think. And the scribes began to think it. The scribes were the religious authorities of the time. And picking up in verse 6, we see how they responded. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Remember that questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
So people are confused. We don't know how the friends and the paralytic are responding. And yet the scribes are irate at what just happened. And rightfully so. You see, in the past, uh, when someone would be healed in the temple, it was the priest's job to pronounce that person healed. Not the priest's job to say, your sins are forgiven. Only God forgives sins. And that's true throughout what at this point was Jewish history. Only God can forgive sins. Why? Because God is really the only one truly sinned against. You see, when God created us way back in Genesis 1, he created us in perfect relationship with him. There was no sin, there was no hate, there was no disdain. But then Satan came and he said, hey, do you think God really has your good in mind? Do you think this divine cosmic being who breathed everything into existence really cares for you? And Adam and Eve didn't. And they doubted God's goodness and chose to listen to Satan and they sinned against God. And from that moment on, we are all living in the midst of the sin of unbelief. Romans 1 tells us that the moment we're born, we exchange the truth for the lie and immediately reject Jesus. None of us are born Bible-believing saints. We're born enemies of God who refuse to believe in Jesus. And see, the greatest sin this world will ever know is not genocide or slavery. The greatest sin the world will ever know is unbelief. Why? Genocide's horrible. Slavery's horrible. We're seeing in the Middle East horrible sins. But the only sin with an eternal consequence is unbelief. The greatest penalty for actions is not to murder somebody else, but to reject a perfect and pure God and spend the rest of your life as a sinner in hell. It is the highest consequence because it has the highest response. When you sin against somebody else, you're sinning against somebody who's probably a good guy, but probably has some skeletons in his closet. But when you sin against God, it's different. Think if, if, if someone were to, and it's going to sound funny when I say it, if someone were to walk up to my son, Owen, who's two years old, and just punch him in the face, people would be pretty upset. If someone were to walk up to Austin and punch him in the face, people would be weirded out, but probably less upset. Why? Ah, Austin's probably done something that's bad <laughs> over the course of his life. He's a man, he can handle it. But because we have this perception that my two-year-old son couldn't have possibly done anything to hurt me, that's the worst sin. How much more when it's a perfect and lovely being like God, and yet we sin against him in our unbelief. You see, our sin may hurt men, but our sin is always an attack on God's holiness. Our sins are against God. So what Jesus did here in forgiving sin, it is blasphemy. It is heresy. It is a bold-faced lie if Jesus is not God. If Jesus is just another man, we should tell this man to be sub. We should be mad. We should be livid. But Jesus is God. And I love how Jesus proves that in the next sentence because uh, here, the scribes are wondering in their hearts, in their hearts, they're like, how can this man forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And as they're pondering this in their hearts, look at what Jesus says to them. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned him within themselves, said to them, 
Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified who God saying, we've never seen anything like this. And so as these Pharisees, you can imagine like in their hearts, in their hearts where no one can hear it. They're like, only God can do this. Jesus is like, hey, why are you doing that in your heart? Jesus is seeing what's going on in their hearts because God sees our hearts. And so Jesus sees this happening here, and he says, what's easier, you righteous men? What's easier for me to say? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? You see, for God, it's child's play to heal somebody. He breathed this world into existence with his mouth. How much more can he heal two pairs of legs that don't work? It's nothing for God to do God-like things. We should expect that. And yet, Jesus, because these stupid, dumb humans, just like us, don't get it, in his mercy to prove his authority, says to the paralytic, get up and go home. And then we see, again, the paralytic rise up in complete restoration. Now, his legs weren't atrophied, which they should have been. He wasn't shaking, which he should have been. He rose up, picked up his mat, and walked home like he was never before lame. You see, why does Jesus heal? In this instance, why does Jesus heal? To testify to the reality of who he is. You see, Jesus' miracles were tools for his message. Jesus forgave this man's sins. This man had just received the world's greatest treasure. Only God can forgive sins. No act of, of, of piety, no act of sacrifice, no act of morals can forgive this man's sin. And yet Jesus came in and forgave his sins. The world's greatest treasure happened, something we can never achieve. And to top it all off, to prove to the hard-hearted people, he says, get up and walk, because I have authority over that too. What now? What now? What can't I do? Here you are amazed that a man who is lame gets up and walk. How much more should you be amazed that a man who is spiritually dead now has forgiveness of sins through my word. See, this Jesus isn't like other men. See, ultimately, it was the sin of man that this man's legs were paralyzed. See, when God created us and we had a perfect relationship with him, there's no sickness, there's no paralytics, there's no cancer, there's no militant groups. But because we sinned, death entered this world, and disease, and paralysis, and early death, and horrible, hurtful, hateful things. And we live in a world where we live in, with the consequence of sin. We live with the consequence of sin. We live in a dirty, broken world, and we'll encounter dirty, broken things. But Jesus proved he has not only the power to restore health, but Jesus, and Jesus alone, has the power to destroy the effects of sin all together. And you see, one day, this brief outbreaking of a kingdom, this brief outbreaking where the laws of sin were broken, and someone who was dead was made alive, that will be our reality. 
You see, for those who are in Christ, we will one day live in a world where we're not only free from the consequence of sin, we're free from the burden of it altogether. Where one day sin will be removed entirely and no sickness and no pain and no tear will fall because we live in perfect relationship before the spotless Lamb of God. This is our hope in redemption. This is why Jesus performed his miracles, was to point to that. His miracles point to the fact that Jesus frees us from the weight of sin because he is God. Jesus frees us from sin. And this next story helps us understand a little bit more about not just what Jesus does. Jesus frees sinners, but he gives us his attitude towards those who are sinful. The second point we're going to look at tonight is the desire of a Savior. The desire of a Savior. Mark 2, verses 13 through 14. So again, there, there's a Jesus leaving. So immediately after this, he went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to them, and he was teaching them. You, you just can't escape Jesus' teaching. Jesus came for a reason, and he was sticking to it. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And so here we see Jesus calling another disciple. And this scene unfolds almost exactly like the scene we saw a couple weeks ago where Jesus called his first four disciples. Jesus walks by an unsuspecting person. He says, follow me. That person is immediately forced to respond to the call of Jesus. And because Jesus' call is, is, is effective and compulsive, he brings these people out of their current walk of life and changes them by calling them to follow him. And so in that sense, it's similar to what we saw with the first four disciples. But in another sense, it's completely different. Because the nature of Levi, and, and if you've been at church on Sunday with us, and if you've been with Mark, you'll learn that like Bible names, you get like eight of them. So Levi um, is also called Matthew, and he went on to be the disciple who wrote the gospel of Matthew. So as I talk about Matthew, don't freak out because his name isn't in here. Levi is Matthew. And so... Levi, as I say Levi, Matthew is a tax collector, okay? And tax collectors in that day were hated by Jews, okay? And not just hated, like, oh, taxes, oh, I hate taxes. It's like the Jewish law saw tax collectors as the equivalent of murderers. That's different than the IRS, okay? We hate the IRS. We don't lump them in with murderers. And yet, what the tax collectors would do is because Jews refused to pay taxes directly to Rome because they didn't feel like they should religiously, they would appoint Jewish tax collectors who would then go, they would take money from the Jews, exorbitant amounts of money, pocket some for themselves, and then because a Jew is giving money to a Jew, that Jew would then betray Jewish law and give the rest of the money to the people who are oppressing and ruling over the Jews. Okay, Reasons for hate. 101. That person, we hate him. And, and realistically, if we stop and think about it, the closest parallel we can see to the occupation of tax collectors in Jesus' time are those, those scumbags who, who, who prey on, on senior citizens and mentally handicapped people by calling and email or emailing them to invest in something or to buy some, pro some product only to blatantly rob them of their money. 
and I have a grandma, and our family has a friend who's mentally handicapped who has been victimized by both, and my mom has called those people and been like, who are you that you would do this? And this is Matthew. And Jesus just called this sleazebag into fellowship with him. And not just fellowship with him. Jesus called him to be a disciple, and not lowercase d disciple, the disciple, one of the 12 disciples, who if you were with us on church on Sunday, we saw the importance of that 12, so much so that after Judas hung himself after he betrayed Jesus, the disciples got together, and the first order of the early church was to appoint a 12. Okay, this is a big deal that Matthew just got made a disciple. It's pretty scandalous here, but it gets worse. Look at what happens. Verse 15. As he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there are many who followed him. And there's a lot that just happened between verses 14 and 15. Luke fills us in a little bit in his gospel, where he says this in Luke 5, verse 29. And Levi... That's Matthew, made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at his table with him. So, Matthew, Jesus calls Matthew. What does Matthew do? He immediately leaves his tax booth. He leaves his debauchery. He leaves his sinful life. But he is so overwhelmed by Jesus who called him into fellowship that all he wants to do is celebrate. But the only people who want to celebrate with Matthew are thieves and scoundrels like Matthew. And so Matthew goes and calls his only friends and throws a party. Why? Because Jesus has called him into fellowship with him. And now Jesus, rather than choosing to like, be like, I don't do it with those people, Jesus goes and he's reclining at a table having fellowship with the worst of sinners. This is scandalous. This is big. And, and you see how the scribes responded here. Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, I also have this picture, like, where are these people? Like, Jesus inside a house, are they just, like, so obsessed with Jesus? They're, like, just outside the windows, like, is this normal? Do you think they see us? And so, anyway, the scribes are, are just hounding Jesus at this point, and they see him in there, and they say, who is this that's eating with sinners and tax collectors? Um, and said to his disciples, and so the scribes are saying to Jesus' disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And see, this is scandalous because it's not just like Jesus is a good time party-goer guy and he happens to roll in the party-going scene. It's like Jesus had become a pretty well-known, as we've seen, miracle worker, but he's also a very well-known teacher in the synagogues. People respected Jesus. Jesus was one who elaborated on the Old Testament law much as the scribes did. And scribes and teachers of the law, they fall in that legalist camp. They do not associate with sinners. And if Jesus was a teacher of the law, he should never even enter into that house, let alone fellowship with these people. It is a scandal equivalent of Mother Teresa who spent her time working with orphans going to a casino run by the people who are trafficking children. And this is big. And so it's right that the scribes are upset about what's going on here. But why did he do this? Why did Jesus do this? Verse 17, Jesus gives a purpose statement. And when Jesus heard it, 
And see, again, they ask the disciples, but it's Jesus who responds. Jesus said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. You see, Jesus rebukes the legalistic scribes, and he says, I've come for the sick. I've come for those who are dead in their sin, because it's the, exactly the unrighteous who need me. Jesus said, as boldly as you can say, I have come for sinners. Jesus came for sinners. And Jesus calls, in this case, he alludes to the scribes as righteous people. But Jesus wasn't saying that as a term of endearment. Jesus was slandering them with a vast exaggeration to make a point. Because he's not calling them righteous. He's mocking them in a false righteousness that they have. Paul, in Romans 3, quotes a psalm in verses 10 through 12 where he says this. Romans 3, not Romans 10, which is where I am. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one is righteous. That's the sin of pervasive unbelief that we are born into. None of us are born good people. Not your grandma, not your great aunt, not Monty. No one is born good. Monty was for my son, who's not here, but he loves Monty. Um, no one is righteous except for God. No one. The legalists need Jesus, and the liberalists need Jesus, because your righteousness won't save you on the legalist end, and your ignorance won't save you on the liberalist end. Jesus will save you. Jesus forgives. You must believe in Jesus. And in the same way the scribes were shocked, like, in their gut, shocked that Jesus was hanging out with sinners. It was because they had a wrong view of him. Yet, I think oftentimes we're not shocked enough at Jesus hanging with sinners because we have a wrong view of Jesus. You see, in today's church culture, it's hip to say Jesus is a friend of sinners. And it's hip in one sense because it's biblical. But oftentimes we use this Jesus chumming up with sinners as an excuse, because Jesus didn't befriend sinners because their sin was not offensive to him. Jesus befriended sinners because he knew they were numb to their own disease. Jesus befriended sinners because sinners would have never befriended Jesus. Jesus hates sin, and sinners who are left to die in their sinfulness will not know the love of Jesus, they will know the wrath of God. But here we see Jesus dining with and lounging with the sick, not because it makes a better story, not because it makes Jesus more acceptable, not because it makes Jesus more palatable to a diverse economy of people. Jesus came to the sinners because the sinners needed Jesus. That's why Jesus went there. Jesus came to those who were dying. He came to those who needed repentance, and he called them. I love that. I came to call, not call the righteous, but to call the unrighteous. You see, Jesus, rather than sitting in heaven and picking up a phone to communicate us, he came down to earth and he picked up our filth in order to save us. And he died for our sin in order to save us. Why? Because we never would have saved ourselves. We never would have called Jesus. We never would have approached Jesus. But only because Jesus came to us do we have access to his sweet redemption. You see, these two stories show, one, that Jesus is able to forgive our sin, 
But second, it shows that Jesus is willing to forgive your sin. Turn to him. You should turn to him. You can't hide your sin. You may not feel the weight of it. You might be like, you know what? I'm not that bad. I don't need Jesus right now. But you know what? People who have cancer oftentimes don't realize the symptoms of cancer until it's too late. Jesus came so that you could see the symptoms of your sin. It leads to a cross. Either you'll die on it or Jesus will. Jesus came to show you your sin. You can't cover your sins. You can't hide your sins. You can defer and act like they're not there. You, you can't solve them by church attendance or morals. You need your sin to be forgiven by Christ. And the cross makes that possible. This is why Jesus came. Jesus says it's the sick that need a physician. But as the prophet Isaiah says, the sick are healed by the wounds of Jesus. Someone's going to die for sin. Jesus came to do it for you. Jesus came to die for your sin. And so you Christians, don't see Jesus' actions as an affirmation that sin, even at the smallest amount, is okay, but rather see Jesus' incarnation, the need that Jesus had to come to earth and take on flesh, see that as the clearest picture that sin is not okay. Not now, not never. Not in the little bit, not in the lot bit. And that sin needs to be put to death. That you cannot have sin in your heart. And by the power of Christ and his resurrection and victory over it, we seek to put sin to death. But also, in looking at this, let's not be legalistic in our view of sin. But let's see what Jesus' actions did. Let his actions drive our mission. You see, we shouldn't be liberalist towards sin, but we shouldn't be legalistic with it either. Jesus didn't remove himself from sinners entirely. And yet... In going to sinners, he never compromised his message, and he never compromised his actions. You should not compromise your message. You should not compromise your actions, but you should engage those who are not believers with Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus engaged you when you are not a believer in Jesus Christ. Are you willing to do that? The only point of application there is today is what is your view of sin? How do you view sin? And then the sub-question of that is, in however you classify your view of sin, do you see Jesus as the only one who can forgive it? Do you see Jesus as the only one who made a way for you to have life out of the death that sin brought? And if you can answer those questions, Mark's done his job. And so I want to pray that Jesus gives us clarity for sin, and I want to celebrate the gospel in song as we close. <coughs> Lord, uh, you say that those who, who do not worship you are blinded as if a veil is over our face. And so we ask, Lord, in this moment that you lift a veil, that if we've never seen Jesus at all, that you may grant us the ability to see him for the first time. And Lord, I pray for those who have seen Jesus, that you give us an even clearer picture of our sin so that we may see the infinite weight of Jesus who came and died for it in our place so that we may have life. And we thank you that out of pity and out of your great love and compassion, you came to those who were sick, not to shun us, not to destroy us, but to offer us salvation through your son who was murdered for sin in our place. 
Lord, make us respond rightly to who Jesus is. I pray this in your name.